0: Mission Log Supplemental, number two. The one with Robert J. Sawyer.
1: Stuck between the virtual pages of the Mission Log, it's Mission Log Supplemental, number two. The second of the Supplemental Mission Logs. I'm Ken Ray. And today the role of John Champion will be played by
2: me, John Champion. Ooh, he does a good John Champion. I've I've been told that. I appreciate it. I'm going up for the John Champion Award next year, so uh, I hope (laughs) I have your vote.
1: Congratulations.
2: Uh, (laughs) uh, So once again, here we are on the supplemental. We get to put all the stuff into uh, kind of a, a unique episode that doesn't fit into the regular mission log format.
1: Yeah, this is the place that we get to answer questions that people have posed to us, which we're going to do a little bit later. We get to play some listener feedback, which we're going to do a little bit later. And we get to talk to some people with some really interesting stuff to say about Star Trek, which we are going to do uh, right now. If you know the television show Flash Forward or the uh, novel on which that television show is based, if you know the novel Calculating God, if you know, um, oh, oh, hominids, humans and hybrids was a trilogy that he did, Um very exciting today. We're talking right now to Hugo Nebula and John W. Campbell award winning author, Robert J. Sawyer.
2: Rob, it's interesting. We were actually introduced through a mutual fan and uh or mutual friend rather, and he said, Oh, you have to have Robert J. Sawyer on because he's a huge Star Trek fan. So I am guessing uh, that was our
3: buddy James Kerwin, the film. <laughs> you would be
2: absolutely right. Yes. Who directed
3: uh, Star Trek's own Chase Masterson in the wonderful film Yesterday Was a Lie?
2: Yeah, so it, it's a uh, a very close knit family of Star Trek fans here. So, uh, but that leads to the obvious question then: I, if you could tell us a little bit about your own Star Trek fandom, did you grow up with the show, and, and what what are your likes and uh, dislikes? Yeah,
3: absolutely, absolutely. I was born in 1960, so the show premiered when I was six years old. I only got to see one episode in first run. My older brother, he's six years older than me, was a Star Trek uh, fan from day one, watching it as it aired the first time out. But I didn't get to see it. I was a little young. The one I got to see in first run was Devil in the Dark, written by Gene L. Coon. What a wonderful introduction to Star Trek. I mean, just a, a fabulous episode on all bases. And although I'd only seen that one episode, I proceeded the next day to make out of Lego a model of the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) I I wish I still had. Um, I absolutely adored the show from that point, but I didn't really become involved in Trek fandom until the show was in heavy syndication in Canada, Toronto, where I live, starting about 1972. So I'm uh, 12 years old, and they're syndicating it five nights a week. Uh, After school, I'm rushing home from school every day to watch it. And I watched those original 79 over and over and over again, to the point where, uh, like many a fan, of course, I can recite whole passages of dialogue and identify any episode from a single frame and all that sort of thing. Uh, Flash forward to 1976, I'm 16 years old, and we have a very large Star Trek convention in Toronto, Toronto Star Trek 76. And that would have been my introduction to formal Star Trek fandom. I've been aware of it. I bought stuff from uh, Lincoln Enterprises. Prior to that, Gene Roddenberry, Major Barrett's company. Uh, I bought stuff from David Gerald, who was selling tribbles by mail order in the mid '70s. Uh, but my real connection and first, you know, seeing the actors in the flesh, getting to know some of the writers, uh, started at Toronto Star Trek '76. Flash forward a great deal, and I became president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, professional writer, and one of the great joys of that uh, was that I got to know Norman Spinrat a predecessor as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Of course, he wrote Doomsday Machine, became great friends with David Gerald. David and I went on to edit an anthology for Ben Bella Books called Boarding the Enterprise uh, in honor of the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, one of these pop um, culture essay collections. Uh, David and I put that together, and I've just been a lifelong Star Trek fan. Uh, to this day, I have the... Uh, uh, I, I'm sitting here in my home, and I've got the uh, giant master replicas, 33 inch uh, limited edition uh, Enterprise original series Enterprise uh, sitting across from me, giving me uh, uh, beaming karma at me as uh, we do could... this.
1: <laughs> nice. So there's well, obviously there's forgive me there's obviously a, a deep history with the original series. Talk to us if you could about. Um... Uh, the follow on Next Generation, Voyager, Deep Space sure. Nine, things like that.
3: Sure, I am a original series um, diehard. When you ask people to rank the series in order, original series always comes up number one and by a good margin for me. In fact, David Gerald and I were having a little back and forth uh, recently on my Facebook wall because I had referred to the unfairly maligned uh, third season of Star Trek, original Star Trek. And David said, no, it was fairly and rightly (laughs) malign. And I bit my tongue before I said, if David's listening, forgive me, David, but I would trade the third season of TOS for the first season of TNG any day of the week. Uh, TNG did find its legs, and I became very, very fond of the show. Uh, Starting, really starting season three. um, I think Deep Space Nine, in its best moments, did the best stuff that had ever been done in Star Trek. Episodes like The Visitor, episodes like um, uh, Duet uh, are absolutely fabulous pieces of work. Uh, And, uh, of course, uh, far beyond the stars. If they had maintained that level, uh, I might have actually become uh, a a real DS9 partisan. Voyager, uh, I watched. uh, I watched with even renewed interest when Jerry Ryan joined the cast. Uh, I'm buddies with Brandon Braga because we worked together on Flash Forward, the adaptation of my... Uh, novel of the same name that was an ABC TV series, Uh, but I have to say Voyager never quite clicked for me, although I had been a Kate Mulgrew fan well before Voyager. I was a Mrs. Columbo fan. I loved her and everything she'd ever done. Uh, And Enterprise, um, I'm uh, great friends with Garfield and Judith Reeve stevens who are from Toronto, and they were four-season producers along, of course, with uh, showrunner Manny Cotto. Uh, by fourth season, I thought Enterprise had really found its legs, and I'm sorry to see it didn't continue. So, you know, I'm familiar with all the shows, but uh, give me an a, a original episode with Kirk Spock and McCoy anytime.
2: Well, we should have you back in about eight years when we get into the uh, Voyager era <laughs> and uh, Enterprise era on our show. Um, Let's talk big picture just a little bit. Uh, why is Star Trek kind of your go-to show? You know, Why does it hold such high esteem for you among all science fiction? And what was the general appeal to you about Star Trek?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, and this, this shades more to original series, because I think so this was lost as we moved ahead, the really trenchant social comment you know, I say I was born in 1960. I'm growing up in the 1960s. What's the background of that, the backdrop of that? Uh, and I'll say that I grew up in Toronto. My mother's an American. I'm a dual citizen, very conscious of what's going on in the States in the 1960s with race relations and the struggle for civil rights, with the war in Vietnam, uh, and with the dawning ecological awareness, uh, with concerns about overpopulation. And here was a show, you know, we, we would watch... the the nightly news and we'd often watch um, not just the CBC, the Canadian news but also look at uh, Uncle Walter, Walter Cronkite on CBS. Get the American perspective. Once the news ended and we moved on to the evening's entertainment, never again were those topics mentioned Mm. except in one show. You know, a show that was contemporaneous with original Star Trek is Get Smart. Now think about that. Get (laughs) Smart is set in Washington (laughs) D.C. Washington, D.C. is the focal point of all of the anti-Vietnam protests, of all of the stuff that's going on in that era, and it is utterly separate from that reality. But on the original Star Trek, I'm seeing race relations, I'm seeing anti-Vietnam stories, I'm seeing stories with an ecological bent, and even as a kid. That drew me enormously. And remember what the competition was. I loved, like all kids do, rockets, spaceships, aliens. The competition was lost in space. Even at six years old, you can see that one of these shows is standing head and shoulders above the other in terms of ambition of what they're trying to do. Star Trek endures, and the beauty of it enduring is its ability to reflect the times. Uh, We get a different kind of Star Trek for the different decades that have gone by. Each series has been remarkably different from the other. But that said, uh, this is a message more for J.J. Abrams, and I know he's wrapped principal photography, and whoever else goes on to bring us the next iteration of Star Trek on TV. We are at difficult times. The world is facing as much difficulty today as it was in the 1960s. And I hope that whoever next re-envisions Star Trek will remember the power of those episodes from the 1960s, and what Gene Roddenberry really set out to do, which is comment, not action-adventure, not soap opera aboard a spaceship, not escapist entertainment, but to comment in a meaningful way on the issues of the time. I look forward for whatever Star Trek Next is going to be and hope that it vividly embraces the power of Star Trek, the original series.
1: Now, what's interesting is when we had originally started talking about about having you on we we asked you know what are some of the what are some of the uh, episodes that appeal to you most and it's interesting and in all the stuff that you just mentioned we've hit some of those topics on on other shows but but the one that seemed to really uh, speak to you or at least one of the ones that seemed to speak to you most was um, was Balance of Terror which i don't yes. think of as being i mean there's no eco message in there i mean there's certainly a race relations message but what there's, is what is it about Balance of
3: Escalation message for sure Ken and there's yeah. also an anti-war message there you've got the absolute hawk character. How do you know he's a hawk? Because his spaceship is painted like a hawk. (laughs) It's the Romulan commander, Mark Leonard. And what does he say? What is the message? But does it always have to be so? Mm -hmm. Over and over again, he says, is this really necessary? Every time something provocative happens uh, from the other side, do we have to respond with diving in to war? And, wonderful, pacifistic character and a, a character of great nobility. I mean, he's a soldier. He said he's, you know, uh, he and the Centurion have seen, Centurion says, we've seen a hundred campaigns together. That's a lot of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is a guy who keeps questioning the validity of armed conflict. And then there's also this wonderful race relations message in there. Styles is an absolute uh, bigot. And as Kirk says to him, Leave any bigotry in your quarters, mister. There's no place for it on the bridge. And I just rewatched the episode. Literally, within the last hour, I finished watching the episode in preparation for this interview. And looking at the wonderful uh, direction by Vincent, and I don't know how to say his last name. I'm going to say it's uh, McVeedy. I don't know how to say that. M-C-E-V-E-E-T-Y. Sounds good
2: to me. Yep. (laughs) Uh,
3: Wonderful director. Did Spectre of the Gun. Did all kinds of stylish episodes. But in this, you watch the balance of shots and you see how many times, gratuitously, that is unnecessarily for the action of the scene, he includes Sulu and he includes Uhura in this sh- in these shots that are in an episode about race relations and prejudice. And it's very interesting that it's the white guy, Styles, who is showing prejudice against another essentially white guy, Spock, in that episode. But he's showing the inclusiveness, and Kirk articulates the inclusiveness. Leave it in your quarters, sir, uh, mister. There's no place for it here. And I think that's spectacular. So, no, it's not an eco-episode by any means. In fact, the Romulan commander litters. He throws <laughs> dead <laughs> bodies and conduits and plastiforms out the airlock. But it is a wonderful, despite it being a military episode, it is an anti-war episode.
1: There was something, uh, when John and I were doing this episode, uh, doing... Um a balance of terror, uh, for the, for the regular mission log, there, there was something kind of odd too, about having, uh, having the shots on Sulu, especially because as, as we pointed out in that episode, we were only what, 21 years out of world war two at that point. Yes. And so to, to, I mean, the, the concentration on Sulu was it, to put yourself back in that time to put yourself in 66 when the show aired, um, uh, the concentration on Sulu, um, it, it struck an odd chord. I won't say it was strange it's, because it wasn't, you know, but it, it hit weird.
3: It's wonderful. And also, Uhura. remember, at the time Michelle Nichols was filming this episode, there were public washrooms in that country that she could not use. Mm. Right? There was segregation still rampant in the south of the United States in 1966 when this episode was made. And there is, you know, in in all Star Trek of that era, and I'm hoping my own work will be judged kindly by the future as well, we have to. You know, we, we can easily look back and sneer from the 21st century at the foibles of the mid-20th. Uh, Kurt constantly refers to men, not people. Uh, when he goes to have his briefing, he takes the men off the bridge and goes to the briefing room. But that said, Ohura is left in charge of the bridge. When Kurt calls from the briefing room to the bridge, he says, bridge into the intercom. The response is, Ohura here. She's in charge, and she moves from communication to navigation with nobody batting an eye, and Sulu actually beaming at her quite appreciatively. Uh, this, this visual language of Nichelle Nichols being seen uh, in uh, treated as an equal in a command role, left in charge of the bridge during a battle situation, my goodness, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff to see in 1966.
2: Excellent. I, I also want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the menagerie. We can always come back to Balance of Terror sure. if you like. Um, but I know that that is one of your favorites, and I wanted to ask you: Do you think that that episode is particularly strong on its own? All the the courtroom, which uh, you mean the cage? Or? Uh, no, I'm talking about the. In, in, oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the cage. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But I, I wanted to. Um, I, I wanted to see if you thought that. Um, you felt like the courtroom drama with Spock and Kirk and uh, uh, Spock taking his former captain back to Talos IV. Do you think that that particularly makes that a strong episode, or do you think that it's particularly strong because of what we get to experience from the original pilot, from the sure, sort of sure. watching that through their eyes? And as a follow up, do you think that Spock acts reasonably? You know, he, he keeps saying through that episode that he behaved logically, <laughs> but doing something clearly out of compassion, out of emotion to rescue. Well, Let me people. start yeah. with
3: that point uh, first. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek film, he finally really answers the question that D.C. Fontana posed in Journey to Babel. Spock says to Sarek, why did you marry her? And Sarek says, at the time, it seemed the logical thing to do, which is dodging the question. What, has he knocked up a human woman and he's got to make an honest woman out of her? <laughs> what does that mean, right? And then J.J. Abrams says, I married her because I loved her. What is Spock's motivation for everything he does for Pike? And I'm not talking anything other than, you know, the love one has for one's brother. Uh, but he does everything. When he says, it was, I behaved entirely logically, what he means is, I did it because I loved him. I did everything I could for Christopher Pike, and I would do everything again for Christopher Pike. I love that man, and that is the message. So no, he doesn't behave logically at all. He behaves out of this deep emotional passion. And I, again, I'm not making anything, you know, uh, uh, homosexual into this. Just the love of two men. Uh, can have for each other, and it's clearly what motivates Spock in this episode. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Now, to the larger question you ask, I love courtroom drama. I love Court Martial, the the quintessential Star Trek classic courtroom episode. Um, The courtroom stuff in, uh, you know, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the Klingon courtroom, fascinating stuff. Uh, I love the framing story that Gene Roddenberry put around his own interior story, The Cage. Uh, I actually think it works really, really well. Um, And, you know, for decades, all we could see was the menagerie. You couldn't see the cage. And then, you know, finally, the cage was released on VHS and blah, blah, blah. Now it's on the Blu-ray, of course. Uh, And it's wonderful in its own right. I very much like the cage. It's a terrific story. And the actual original ending of the cage, which is that the, uh, you know, uh, Pike says to the keeper, You'll give her back her illusion of beauty. And the keeper, Meg Wiley, says, and more. And what do we see? Not the ending that we got in Menagerie, um, but we see that, uh, uh, which is the crippled Pike being restored to health, and come back with her. What we see is an illusion of Pike. She's going to have the man, quite literally, of her dreams for all time. It's a beautiful ending. It's a beautiful episode, The Cage, Um, and clearly, you know, we all say NBC uh, passed on that pilot, but they ordered a second pilot not on the weaknesses of the cage, but on the strengths of the cage. They never would have spent the money on a second pilot if there hadn't been real merit in that first piece of work. Uh, But I do actually very much like the framing story. Uh, It's not padding in the way, now, you know, in um, reunification, the next generation two-parter that brings us back Spock, the entire first episode of that, which gets to find the Spock walking out of the shadows. Uh, Picard says, "I'm looking for Command- uh, Ambassador Spock." And Nimoy steps out and says, "Well, then you have found him, Captain Picard." The preceding 43 of those 44 minutes is complete and utter padding. <laughs> There's, not a lick of padding. There's not a lick of padding in Menagerie. All of the stuff is dramatic. The framing story and the uh, the original pilot that's plugged into it—wonderful piece of work.
1: I got to say too, between the Menagerie and the Cage. I mean, you're only talking about two years uh, separating the production, but there's a real stylistic difference between the two. And there's something there's something. I mean, it's weird because we're talking about when we talk about Star Trek, we're talking about a show that was on 48 years ago. But there's 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 almost a nostalgia. I I think when I was talking to John about it, um, I almost likened it to. Um, Oh, now I can't think of the name of it, like Rocky Jones, uh, Space Ranger, or something. <laughs> there, there's something that's still just a tiny bit Flash Gordon, or just a tiny bit Captain Video about about the props and about about the about the outfits that you you even lose two years later when you go to Star Trek. And it's not like, oh, I really miss that. But at the same time, there's, I mean, they're they're distinctive in their own ways. And there's there's a there's sort of a there's sort of a naive beauty to the production. Of uh, of the menagerie, right.
2: I, I love the idea that they did set it thirteen years later instead yeah, of true. two years later. And and like I mentioned in our show, I think that audiences must have been just blown away. In 1966 to think, whoa, they they produce this whole other show (laughs) with this other cast. And, you know, if you had not known the the background production history that this was a killed pilot, you would have thought that Star Trek was was the greatest show in the world, obviously, for other reasons. But you would have thought that they were amazing at creating their own alternate history. I, I thought that was just really cool about it.
3: Mm-hmm. It's spectacular looking. It's spectacular looking. The juxtaposition of Kirk-era Enterprise Bridge and Pike-era Enterprise Bridge. It's p- spectacular.
1: I was a huge fan of uh, in Next Gen when they did that, too. I cannot remember the name of the episode, but when the Enterprise, uh, what is it, 1701B? The one with, yes. right, with Christopher no, McDonald? Uh,
3: that's actually the Enterprise C. Is it the C? Okay. Uh, Captain Rachel Garrett, and the episode is called "Yesterday's." Yesterday's.
1: Yeah, I, that that to me was just stunning. It, that that was sort of. And I think I, I forgot about that when we talked about it, John. But that to me was the mm-hmm. eye opener. When they're like, "Oh, by the way, here's this other here's this other thing that happened," and it never really happened, but it happened. We're going to show you <laughs> this alternate timeline, <laughs> which you're never right. going to see again. Oh, neat! It was kind of it was kind of mind blowing.
3: I guess right. sure. They, we never would have had that if we hadn't had Menagerie, If they hadn't. You know, that's the seed for every other time they showed us an alternate reality, an alternate version of Starfleet comes out of Menagerie. And I got to say, the, uh, the bridge of the Enterprise never looked better than it looked in the cage. Yes, they added a little bit of color to it, uh, the, the red railings and the red helm navigation console instead of everything being kind of military battleship gray. But, you know, it's the only episode where you see the monitors above the workstations actually having uh, images constantly changing above them. It's got those lovely gooseneck um, uh, viewers uh, attached to all the stations that people look into, which give a nice, uh, uh, you know, all these harsh angles on the bridge, and then there are these random S lines by the little goosenecks, leading to the little uh, video viewers that people have. Look terrific. Uh, and there's the use of um, hand gestures, which is done even more in um, where no man has gone before. The second pilot, instead of physically touching bus buttons using hand gesture control, mm-hmm. it really is a better looking bridge because if, you know uh, they had the time and money to spend on it. Then when they got into the grind of week to week, where they got those cardboard. Uh, cut out pictures put into the frames above the workstations they got rid of the gooseneck viewers because they were getting in the way of camera angle shot setups uh, and they splashed some garish red paint all over the place but it looked better than it ever did before and ever since uh, in uh, in the cage
1: if we could step away from Star Trek specifically and talk more about science fiction and and television in general um I've almost stopped watching first run science fiction on television because I ended up being orphaned. I was a huge fan of Caprica, um, which got killed in season one. I don't say this because you're on right now. I was a huge fan of Flash Forward and I was heartbroken (laughs) when they said, "Eh, no, it didn't get picked up. Sorry about that. Um, you, me, and
3: my accountant,
1: we were all <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, So I hear good things about Revolution, but I, I want to yeah. wait for at least one season until it's on Netflix or someplace else because I don't want to get 13 weeks or or even 26 weeks or 22 weeks into an episode or into a show and find out, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen and you're just going to have to deal. Um, you know,
3: this is, yeah, sorry well, to be... No,
1: that's okay. I was just going to ask. I mean, I guess the, the questions I have are, I mean, Well, the biggest question I have is, is there a place for good science fiction or intelligent science fiction or, you know, God forbid, both um, on television at this point?
3: You know, I think there is. But we have this Catch-22 now. You're exactly right. So many people won't watch a show in its first season. Because they're afraid of being orphaned, is the word you used at the end. If the show doesn't get great ratings in its first season, then it is cut off at the end of the first season. Yes. And so you have this self fulfilling prophecy. It's really, really difficult. Uh, in Flash Forward, we got, you know, and, and we, we think of ourselves, well, uh, people think of us perhaps as a failure. And yet you think about how many times we got go aheads. We got pilot script, go ahead and film the pilot. pilot go to series with you know an initial six. Mm-hmm. Go from six to 13, go from 13 to the back nine, which is round out the season to 22. We got way more yeses than we got noes, but we got that final no at the end of the 22nd episode that we weren't coming back for season two. And uh, I think part of the problem, I'll tell you, is this. The original Star Trek, as much as we loved all 79 episodes, if it had been canceled after the first 30 or the first 60, there's no cliffhanger, there's no serialized drama in Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry's great notion was that he would do an anthology series like Twilight Zone, but have sets and uh, cast that carried over from episode to episode in this anthology series, and thereby uh, realize a production cost saving. Cheaper to do episode after episode on the standing sets of the Enterprise than what Rod Serling had to do, which is build new sets every week. Brilliant concept, not serialized drama. And that's where it's changed. We've moved into, you know, next generation. You could have canceled it at the end of any one of those seven seasons, and it would have been a complete entity in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's this move to serialized drama that has really hurt science fiction on television. Uh, It's what all the networks want these days. Uh, They think it makes you come back week after week. I think you come back week after week if they give you a brilliant, complete, wonderful storytelling experience this week. You think, yeah, I want another one of those. Please, sir, can I have some more? Not, (laughs) oh, man, it's not over. There's a cliffhanger. I got to come back. Thanks a lot, guys. I much prefer the former model.
1: Well, I mean, the big problem is if you miss the first two episodes, you have no idea what's going on.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And so catching people like, you know, coming in at some point is difficult. I, I feel like maybe every science fiction um, um, property should come with a writer that they all get the uh, serenity treatment from Firefly. Like, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll do your show. And if it doesn't work out, we'll give you a two hour movie. <laughs> so that was, you know,
3: uh, Joss Whedon has a certain amount of clout that the yeah. rest of us do not enjoy. <laughs> that was a wonderful, wonderful thing that he got uh, that opportunity to do that. Um, and it, it would we would have loved to have wrapped up Flash Forward. Believe me, if they gave us a two hour wrap up, we would have loved to have done it. But didn't get to happen.
1: Oh, oh well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Rob, you were involved in a. Uh, well, you did an interview with the Toronto Star, and then you mentioned something on Facebook, and I I saw you and several of your friends there, including James Kerwin, chatting about the age-old question here, the age-old debate, sci-fi versus fantasy. Mm -hmm. And you made some pretty interesting distinctions here. I wonder if you could kind of cover that for our audience and then talk about maybe where Star Trek falls within that line.
3: Sure. Uh, Obviously, I'm a science fiction book writer in particular. So the bar is somewhat higher in the literature of science fiction than it's ever been in film and television. In the Mm -hmm. literature of science fiction, I think that science fiction and fantasy have nothing to do with each other. It rankles me that they're shelved in the same section of bookstores. I say they're orthogonal to each other. They're right angles to each other. Science fiction are stories about things that plausibly might happen. Fantasy are stories about things that never could happen. There's always some way to get from the here and now of our present day To the milieu of a science fiction story, the most common way is that time will pass. We will move into the future with reasonable changes happening in science, technology, and society. There's never any way to get from our here and now to the milieu of a fantasy story. You can stand in that train station forever. The train to Hogwarts will never show up. There's no way to get there from here because magic does not work. In our universe, in this universe, magic, the violation of physical laws, is not possible. And therefore, you can't get to it. It is something that couldn't ever happen. To me, science fiction, and I think part of Gene Roddenberry's genius was recognizing that science fiction that was believable gave a moral authority to the social commentary. As soon as you make it unbelievable, the milieu in which you're disguising Uh, at first blush, what it is you're talking about, um, and people can dismiss it, well, that could never happen, then there's no point in having a moral dimension to it. Lost in space was actually fantasy. Anything went in lost in space. There were no rules. uh, There was no logic. Magic worked when they wanted magic to work. It didn't work when they didn't want it to work. Uh, And there was never any social comment at all whatsoever in lost in space, But Star Trek, with its reasonable extrapolation of a future, let Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and the other great writers, T.C. Fontana and so forth, who who contributed so much to that series, uh, tell us stories that did have relevance because they might plausibly happen.
1: Do you feel like that's science fiction's job?
3: Very much so. Uh, You know... uh, the father of science fiction, uh, in my estimation, is H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells. And, you know, the time machine has nothing at all to do with the year 802-701 A.D. It's not at all about travel into the future. It's about Wells' present day. It's a morality tale about the British class system. It's a set, uh, He wants to tell the world not only the bleedingly obvious, which is the British class system is bad for the working class. Everybody knew that but that it's bad for the leisure class, too. That if you fail to do things for yourself, you will end up being weak of mind, weak of body, ineffectual, feckless, and ultimately taken advantage of by the brutish others, which is what that message of that story is. Uh, Same thing with War of the Worlds. nothing at all to do with a Martian invasion. It's trying to show his contemporaries in Victorian England how they make them say, hey, how would we feel if a uncaring foreign power came striding into our land, crushing our indigenous culture underfoot, underfoot being titled title of one of the chapters in the book? Uh, and he's saying British colonialism is bad. What we're doing is evil in Canada, in, in uh, Jamaica, in the rest of the world, in all the places in Africa, all the places we've gone and planted our flag without any regard for the indigenous peoples. That's a bad thing to do. And uh, that, that's the template from which science fiction, leading right up through to uh, Star Trek and beyond, uh, is built upon. H.G. Wells's template of disguising with metaphor the social comment that you want to make.
1: So, besides Robert J. Sawyer, who's doing this today?
3: Well, that's a very good question. Paolo Bacigalupi, that's a great name for you. Paolo Bacigalupi uh, is a wonderful <laughs> guy at dealing with this stuff. He won uh, a couple of years ago the Hugo and the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, the three big awards in the science fiction field. I'm lucky enough to have won all three myself, but I won them for three separate books. Paolo knocked it out of the park, uh, winning uh, all three of them for uh, the same book, The Wind-Up Girl. And he's got a lot of trenchant commentary about ecology and about multiculturalism uh, in that book, absolutely. He's a guy who's well well worth seeking out.
1: And uh, is spelled like a sound?
3: Uh, it's that's a funny thing to say. <laughs> it's like Wojo used to say that on Barney Miller. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's just like it sounds, right? I would say uh, the Batcha-
1: the wind up girl is probably uh, easier for people to find.
3: B is in boy, A C I G G A L U P I g a l u p i galupi That's A O L uh Oh, The wind up girl. Easier to find the novel.
1: Probably so. Probably
2: so. Hey, Ken, uh, I'm going to out you here. Do it. Yeah. Um, So uh, several weeks ago, we reviewed (laughs) What Are Little Girls Made Of? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Ken, I I I think Ken actually had a, uh, uh, shall we say, a little bit of a fondness maybe for the idea of being uploaded to a computer. Uh, All right. (laughs) So here's the
1: thing. Here's the thing. I got to interview um, Ray Kurzweil several years ago when he was first talking about the possibility of of us being uploaded at some point. Um, Honestly, after What Are Little Girls Made Of? I I thought that Rod uh, Roddenberry might might uh, call in and say, yeah, we're going to send in the B team now. (laughs) <laughs> because, yeah. because we're not really you know we're not you know, totally hip on the idea of somebody who's you know totally hip on the idea of being a robot one day you know if it comes to that don't misunderstand i'm not i'm not looking for a machine to upload myself to but you know right circumstances eh, okay in calculating god you have your character sort of considering that idea and then it seems like and, and it's been about a year and a half since i read it so forgive me if i'm misremembering, but. But You've sort of read it
3: more recently than I have.
1: Oh, okay. Well, then let me let me tell you what happened. It's really it's really awesome. He decides cool. to be a robot, and you know the end. He lives happily ever after. And that is actually not how the book goes by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it, I'm her, not even
3: thinking that's calculating God. Are you sure that's not mind scan?
1: Um, no, it was and in cal- one of my books. It was in Calculating God because they find the uh. <laughs> let's geek out, shall we? Like we haven't <laughs> like we haven't been to this point. They find the planet where there's like sort of a big like steel door on the surface of the planet and they can't get in, they can't get under, they don't know what's going on with it. And, and I believe it's the main character who is, who is an earthling um, who finally figures out that what they've done is they figured out a way to sort of upload the consciousness of everybody on the planet into a, into kind of a mainframe or into kind of a computer system. And that's why when they get there, they don't find any evidence of destruction, but they don't find any evidence of people either. They just find this hatch I mean gigantic but they find this hatch they can't get into and they, they realize that that is protecting um, right, right, right. the repository for basically every what had been every-, every living soul yes so the character here on earth not that it's a possibility for here on earth decides no nah, that's not for me I guess I guess John is just basically making fun of me.
2: <laughs> I would never. But
1: I but I'm I'm curious. I mean, your character uh and I don't want to give too much away about the book except to say that it's very it's a very good book and it's 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 worth reading, I think. Um, what, I mean what's what's your take on that? But when you hear people yeah. like Kurzweil in today's world or, you know, other people um yeah considering that a possibility what's what's sort of your take on the idea
3: sure and i known i've known, I've like known a ray kurzweil for a decade uh in 2002 we gave joint keynotes at an artificial intelligence conference oh wow uh, and uh i find ray uh fascinating and what we're talking about here is what's generally referred to as transhumanism the notion that there may be a destiny for this thing we call humanity that isn't on the substrate of carbon that there's a way to go still be human but upload into an artificial, uh, either in an artificial virtual reality with no physical body, or into an android body, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you remember, actually, uh, going back to the, the series Bible for Star Trek The Next Generation, they ultimately didn't play it out this way, but you might remember that the original conception of Data, and why he was so vastly intelligent, was that he contained within him, uploaded the consciousnesses of all the colonists of a doomed colony. And they, when they finally came and wrote Data Lore, they came up with a different backstory. But that was what was in the first draft, a series bible for Next Gen. Uh, this notion that he was encapsulating the essences of a whole bunch of human beings uh, from a from a, a colony or from alien after was an alien colony or human colony. But anyway, any um, event, I go back and forth about this, and I think that's the value of science fiction: is you get to do these thought experiments. I am not a carbon chauvinist by any stretch of the imagination. I am not a mystical person. I do not think there is something divinely inspired uh, about human consciousness. I think human consciousness is an emergent property of the sufficient neuronal complexity of our brains, Um, but that, like anything, it can be digitized and copied. Uh, I do think that, practically, we will, this century, the 21st, be digitizing and uploading human consciousnesses. And when we do... Uh, We will have those debates that they dealt with, well, in Next Generation, in Measure of a Man, for instance. Uh, Are you, just because you're not biological, are you a person? Uh, And I think the answer is has to be yes. If it talks like a person, answers questions like a person, has moral uh, reasoning like a person, it's a person. Uh, We can't sort of say, yeah, Vulcans and Ferengi are people, but androids aren't. And uh, I... Don't necessarily look forward. I happen to like the physicality of my biology. I don't necessarily look forward to giving up on it. But if the choice were oblivion uh, or an artificial body, I would take the exact opposite choice of Sargon in uh, Return to Tomorrow, the, uh, the great Star Trek episode where uh, Sargon and, uh, and Hanok and the others who have been left behind from ancient times and tried to download into artificial bodies ultimately chose oblivion at the end instead of a robotic existence. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think, uh, I think really what you're saying is in your face, John Champion.
3: <laughs> I'm saying you know, that, that uh, the beauty of science fiction is we get to explore this before the reality is upon us. And it's wonderful that we're having the debate now because we will be facing the reality, both of artificially created conscious beings and of human brains copied to artificial substrates within the lifetime of those of us who are already currently alive.
1: Well, I've got to Brilliant. say, it has, been, it, it has just been a true pleasure uh, to, to talk to you today and to, uh, and to, uh, uh, to have you do this. And I, and I, I do hope that you will, uh, I hope you'll consider uh, uh, coming back and talking to us again sometime.
3: Ken, John, I'd be delighted to return anytime you'd like to have me. Thank you so much.
0: Incoming transmission Hi, my name's Barry, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, you've got a great podcast and I really have enjoyed listening to the episodes you've had so far, uh, deconstructing and, and reimagining the, uh, the old episodes of the original series, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, as many of the episodes as you can get through, through the rest of the, uh, of the old Star Trek and the original and the next generation and on into it. I have a suggestion for a, um, a segment on each episode. I would love to hear you discuss how each episode um, fits into the larger, uh, the larger story of Star Trek and how it relates to episodes on into the next generation, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, all of those. Um, for instance, uh, when you talked about Naked Time a couple of weeks ago, um, talked about how it related a little bit to the Naked Now and Next Generation, um, for instance, uh, it was something I thought of when you were discussing Muds women, uh, there's a recent episode of the Enterprise series where there were three Orion women that wandered on to the Enterprise, and I would love to hear how uh, some of the thoughts of how the episodes relate farther down the line. I know eventually you'll get to those, but I um, would uh, really enjoy hearing some thoughts about how it fits into the larger universe as it was created over the years. Keep on doing a great job, and, and I'm looking forward to what you come up with.
1: Well, thank you very much for your, uh, for, for your question and comment, Barry. And um, I guess the best way to answer it is no.
2: <laughs> is, is that all we're going to leave for Barry? <laughs> it's just no? I love
1: Barry's idea. Honestly, I love Barry's idea, but there are a couple of reasons that I that I know I personally couldn't do it. The biggest uh-huh. reason is I don't have an encyclopedic, if that's even a word, Mm-hmm. I don't have an all-encompassing knowledge of the entire Star Trek universe. I mean, there are certain things that we hit that I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this or that reminds me of that. And I've been guilty, actually, of saying, yeah, I'm going to take us a bit out of the timeline and we'll you know talk briefly about the motion picture or Star Trek V or something like that. Right. But right. generally speaking, we're we're trying not to do that for a couple of reasons. Um, the biggest is we kind of want to be a companion for people who haven't watched Star Trek or for people who are going back to watch it for the first time. And the other is, as I said, I mean, for me personally, and I, John, you can say why, why, why mm-hmm. we decided not to do it from your end. For me personally, mm-hmm. I just I don't have, I'm not, I'm not chapter and verse on Star Trek. I remember what I've seen. I don't remember what I've seen. You know, some stuff that I haven't seen. I mean, obviously, there's some stuff that I saw years and years ago that is, has a little place in my memory, but but is not. I can't recite most episodes of Star Trek.
2: Yeah, that that's kind of the hard thing about. Ticking on something as big as Star Trek anyway. And and it's kind of like when you meet other fans and, you know, you get 10 people in a room together. I'm a fan. Well, I'm a fan. Well, I'm a fan. And then the worst of it is you kind of devolve into who knows more trivia than the other one. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, remember that episode? Well, you know, we could go down that path and and we could just pull out every single bit of trivia. But it, it would really it would detract too much from what we're trying to do, which is to have this conversation about the ideas.
1: Um, So we really want to make sure we're sticking to that
2: as the primary goal here.
1: And you also heard um, Rob say earlier, one of the things that he loved about Star Trek was the fact that it was an anthology show, that it's the same Mm -hmm, characters, mm -hmm. but you you can watch episode three of season one, and then you can watch episode eight of season three. And while you've missed a lot... Certainly. I mean, you know, you, you don't know what bonfire is, right? <laughs> well, you've missed a lot. Um, y- you don't have to have watched them in that order. We could honestly, we could take, you know, we could have taken all of these episodes, written them down on a piece of paper, shaken it up, drawn one from a hat and gone that way if we wanted to. What yeah. we've decided to do, though, is go, you know, episode by episode. Now, that's going to change, certainly, when we get to parts of Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, and certainly a lot more in Deep Space Nine. But yeah. uh, but for the time being, uh, yeah, we're we're taking them one at a time, and then you know, referencing back. I mean, right. God knows we've right. gotten a lot of mileage out out of Doctor Roger Corby
3: uh, just, to, just <laughs> yeah, in the past yeah. few
1: episodes. So referencing back is not is not a is not a an issue or a problem for us. But we're sort of we're basically trying to discover it the way it was originally presented.
2: Yeah, yeah, is that, that's is that a good fair? point.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and here's the other thing: like,
2: I think about the people who made. Star Trek. And I, I've interviewed some of these people who worked in the later years, you know, the Akudas the and Brandon Braga and people who would say, and Ron Moore, you know, certainly. And they would say, you know, here we were working 20, 30 years after the original series. And we had to rely on a team of people to try to keep the storyline straight, to try to keep what was canon, what wasn't. I mean, with this show, really, it's just me and you. Yeah. And it would be we would have to have a team of people to then go through and say oh but what about this reference what about this that pays off and then ultimately you've got a four hour long episode that's just talking about references yeah it, it would get really out of hand um, but yes Barry thank you um, we we certainly appreciate the idea. It, but we're trying to keep mission log something very specific,
1: and the and other I mean, the other really cool thing about the podcast universe is there's got to be a show out there doing it. In fact, there are oh, probably sure. five yeah. <laughs> or yeah, right. twenty five right. so i mean it's a it's a it's a crowded field. It is by no means an overcrowded field, and I feel certain that that what you're looking for is happening elsewhere. and uh, we're going to keep plugging away the way we're doing it, and hopefully you you'll you'll keep enjoying the way we're doing it too
2: um so you know what we got a lot of comments about the cormite maneuver uh about our episode on the corbomite maneuver did we and yes we did yes huh. we did but, but here's the thing i i think what's so cool about that is that you and i both were really kind of blown away by that episode yes like it was one of those where i said you know okay i'd watched this as a kid and i remember it as the monster but the monster is really just a kid and Blah blah blah, but then rewatching it now with this kind of mindset of what can we learn, what can we gather from the show, open it up in a whole new way mm-hmm. and you said that up until that point, that was your favorite episode, yes, you know, um so I think it really struck a nerve with a lot of our audience, and we got uh, well first of all, there's a great little trivia, a little bit of trivia that uh Les submitted to us, and he said that uh. Ted Cassidy, aka Ruck, aka Lurch, he did the voice of the Baylock puppet, and he said it
1: scared the hell out of him when he was a kid
2: <laughs> watching that. I thought that was really cool.
1: See, I, it was a voice that I recognized, but I'm I'm ashamed to say I didn't put two and two together. It did mm-hmm. it did not it, it I for, I didn't identify the voice as um, Ted Cassidy. I knew it was a voice that I knew, but I didn't know which right. one it was.
2: Right, right. Um but then he, here's the other really important thing about this episode is that we got uh, feedback positive and negative uh, though I think the the positive far outweighed the negative, saying that they didn't appreciate that we uh, sort of tied this into a, a modern political uh, story you know mm-hmm. we're we, we tied this into certain kind of more current events and some people just outright chastise us for saying how dare you go political right other others are a little more nuanced and saying well but if you're looking at that side you have to look at the other side this way and you know in particular uh, Joseph Marchion, he writes to us all the time on Facebook and and he really boy if you want to talk about trivia uh, Barry definitely uh, read Joseph's post because he writes very extensive comments and picks up on a lot of the trivia stuff that we just don't have time to do on our show. Um, uh, but I, I don't necessarily want to address the specifics because we don't want to get into a tit for tat. Well, I, I believe this, you believe that, blah, blah, blah. But I do want to address the idea that we will, we have, and we will continue to talk about politics in our show where appropriate.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know? well, I mean, and and the thing is understand, I mean, John's John and Ken's Ken. And we come from where we come from. And so uh, for whatever reason, God bless him, uh, Rod Roddenberry has decided that he would like for us to, uh, to do this show. And so, you know, we come with what we come with. I'm not I'm not a poli sci major. Um, I'm not knowledgeable about every single thing on the planet or in the world. We're both going to say things that people are going to disagree with. And sometimes we might even be wrong. Perish the thought. But I mean, we may be outright wrong and but I mean, uh, politics cannot be off the table when you're talking about Star Trek. Religion cannot be off the table when you're talking about Star Trek. Race relations cannot be off the table when you're talking about Star Trek. The whole reason that we forgive me for speaking for you, John, and correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. The whole reason that, that Star Trek resonates so much with us is because Star Trek is could be a wonderful roadmap for where we want to go. This is like what I talked about in the Corbamite Maneuver. Kirk acts the way we want to be as humans, not necessarily the way he would want to react himself. He may be like the rest of the crew of the Enterprise, he may want to flee, but he, you know, he's going to do what it is that he's going to do. And that to me, it seems like is what Star Trek is. It is a, you know, this is where we could get. This is where we could go. So now let's examine how we get there. And so to watch it and say, I mean, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people who think that I have some sort of atheist agenda. It was actually That was actually the word that was put to it, the term that was put to it. I have an atheist agenda. Right. Let me let you in on a secret. I do not have an atheist agenda. <laughs> I'm, watching right. I'm watching Star Trek. I'm watching Star Trek. I'm seeing what's happening on the screen, and I'm synthesizing that. When they say that hell is a story that was told to Pike as a kid, they say hell was a story that's told to Pike as a kid. You can't take religion off the table when you're talking about Star Trek. You can't right. take politics off the table when you're talking about Star Trek because to do that is to diminish it. To do that is to turn it into Star Wars. To do that is to turn it into, well, just a cute little story that somebody tells, but it really has no value. Yeah. Or to say, well, it has value in this area, but not in this area, or this area, but not in this area. I mean, that doesn't feel to me. I mean, if it's going to be a work of art, if it's going to be a work of literature, if it's going to be any kind of guidepost, which it sounds crazy to say that a 48-year-old television show can be that, but if it's going to be those things, nothing's off the table.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we will inevitably... Have to tie this show into current events, although we're not being really uh, specific in most cases. We're, not we're in not, most cases. We were. Yeah, I, yeah. I was in the Corbin Might maneuver. I know. Well, you were, but you're also talking about kind of a, a general picture of something that has been ongoing for a while. You know, like you said in an interview, we're not trying to say because we're recording this in 2012, make this about the 2012 presidential election. That's right, not right, the right. goal of the show either. Right. You know, um, but. There will inevitably be uh, 21st century modern day political, social, racial, sexual, religious issues that will come up. Because that, that is part of our mission here is to tie this show as a piece of fiction, as a piece of art
1: into relevant modern human experience. Yeah. And, you know? and, and, and certainly, I mean, our intent is not to offend anyone. But if we do offend anyone in a given week, uh, come back next week because we'll certainly offend somebody else instead. <laughs> right. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know what? But here's the thing. I, I said it on Facebook.
2: Being provocative is one thing. Being offensive is another. We want to be provocative because we like the challenge of watching the episodes and seeing where that leads us and we hope that you do too we hope that you accept that in the spirit in which it is offered
1: yeah Um, yeah, all right there you go i'm with you on that please please continue
2: Okay. Uh, well, here, to, just to wrap it up, we did get a, a really nice comment from Michael Petit, who said, uh, just finished listening to your take on might by far your finest episode yet, not only for the analysis of the structure, but also its continuing relevance. Thank you for the fine discussion. And, and that's really the point. It's not really a matter of agreeing or disagreeing, but uh, how far can we take the analysis and um, how
1: relevant can we make it? <laughs> I got one other thing that I do have to say. <laughs> What's that? Forgive me. Um, Go I, I got this comment from a couple of people. Uh, I mm-hmm. can't remember if it's Facebook or email or what, but um, with my stated atheist agenda.
2: Oh, Let's get into that. Do there,
1: no, no, no. There were a few people <laughs> who said, what? You didn't talk about the Christmas party and dagger of the mind. Um, oh, yeah. while, we do have a, while we do have a format that we try to keep to on, um, on the mission log, we also have time. Constraints. Mm. We originally were going to make them each 40 minutes. I think they've now sort of gone to 55 minutes. I think one yeah. or two may have even gone to an hour. We're looking to not push it past an hour. We're looking to keep yeah. it under that. So sadly, you missed five minutes <laughs> <laughs>
0: <About> <laughs> on the Christmas, Christmas party.
1: party. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, which were, had they been comedy gold, um, I would say they were comedy silver. Oh, yeah. But, Easy. you know, they uh, sadly, uh, sadly time uh, left those off, but maybe we'll tack them on to the end of another. Uh, Mission Log Supplemental. In fact, <laughs> right. if you want to, do you want to decide right now? We could tack it on to the end of this one if you want to. Oh, we could. All right. Yeah, why not? Cool. I think why I not? still have it. If I still have it. So listen okay. to the very end. This, this will be like an episode or one of the uh, one of the Avenger movies or one of the Marvel movies. Listen to the very end because when you think the show's over, it may not be over. Right. <laughs> we we may have five minutes on, uh, on the Christmas party. I'm not not 100% okay. on that. Do
2: you want to talk about your atheist agenda? I don't have one. No. No, I thought they had a little booklet, uh, the atheist agenda. You open it up, and well, today I I got nothing. No,
1: seriously, I don't. I don't. I don't. It's. I mean, it's really. I got no. Look, my agenda is to watch Star Trek, figure out what you know happened, and then and talk about it with you.
2: Well, see, here's, here's the tough thing. Is whenever you talk about you, I'm talking about both of us, I mean, anytime that anybody talks about religion, sex, politics, race, social classes, whatever, um, there's this risk that if you say something the other person agrees with, then you're doing the most brilliant show ever made. Mm-hmm. But if you say something the other person disagrees with, no matter what the context is then you're pushing an agenda, you're not getting it, you're doing something wrong, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, and I think we've already really hit this home with the uh, the political part, but the reality is that Star Trek also dealt with religion in a myriad of ways, and it's not just particularly one thing. Um, we can talk about maybe in a later supplemental podcast what Gene Roddenberry's views on religion were because that was something very specific but Star Trek was created by committee, and it was produced by a huge number of people. Yeah, and we will see differing views show up throughout the run of the show. So, like you said, and it, you know, the the thing about atheist agenda showed up in an email to you. It showed up in an iTunes review, um, and, and I definitely think that was unfair. You know, um, we could have made that show, but we didn't. (laughs) You know, our show is designed to just figure out what is being said in the show and interpret that on our own. Um, So we will hit religion. It it will come up many times. We haven't really gotten to it yet. I, I just think you very wisely pointed out these little indicators that we've seen so far that try to figure out. What is the place of religion in the future, at least as being viewed from these different angles?
1: Especially if you go, I mean, especially if you're talking about uh, the menagerie or the cage, excuse me, which one? The cage? The cage is the pilot. Okay. Especially if you're talking about the cage, because that Mm -hmm. was written and produced by Gene Roddenberry. Right. I mean, when you say Star Trek was designed by committee, it was, and certainly it had to go through, um, you know, network as well. Although the cage did not I mean, the yeah. cage was the cage was uh, pure Roddenberry laid right. out on paper. So, right. if you want to treat anything as canon, it feels like you you treat the first few episodes of Star Trek as canon, and sure. then everything else sort of you know everything else sort of folds in, everything else gets sort of weaved in, everything else a lot of it comes from other people that maybe. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had his hands on maybe not the people sorry <laughs> the, the, the material maybe Gene Roddenberry had his hands on maybe he did not the cage is is Roddenberry start to finish and so yeah, to bring those things up and then you know to to hold up an episode that comes you know a year later two years later uh, a whole other series later and say well this contradicts that well sure because a right. long time ago I mean you know the story about uh in Ronald Moore's office there is the um the the bust of Gene Roddenberry with the blindfold, right?
2: Oh, that that was in uh, Rick Berman's office. Yeah. Oh, was it Rick Berman's office? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Because it, the fear was that he wouldn't want to see what was happening.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Right. So, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, sorry, I just want to toss that in there. Cause yeah, yeah. I but really wait, but... don't have an atheist agenda, though. I'm, no, you no, know, no. Some of my best friends are not atheists. I don't even know that I am. I would call myself agnostic, probably. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what happens.
2: Well, I mean, that, that's the whole thing. You know, you and I have our own points of view. Uh, our, our listeners have their own points of view. But our goal here is not to tell you what your point of view should be. Our goal here
1: or or to, you know, specifically. Say unless unless it's about eventually becoming a robot. Oh, right. There I'm going to argue hard for that. <laughs> okay. And I now have a, a Hugo Nebula and John W. Campbell award winner backing me up. It's totally on board with you becoming <laughs> a
2: robot. <laughs> we'll make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of years to go with this podcast so that may that may come about. That's
1: good. very true. Very
2: true. Um cool. Hey, uh some comments about Miri, um positive and negative. Um John Willis, he, he, I love that he, he sent us a, a few just kind of bullet pointed items and I'm not going to be able to go through all of them. Uh, but I, I love that he said, hey, you know, uh, 300-year-old canned food is doing pretty damn good, or at least it's a lot of Twinkies with the uh, preservatives and all. So we presented with this idea that these, you know, prepubescent kids have been living for 300 years off of just whatever was around. Yeah. Uh, and he says, obviously, the LDL catches up with you. As uh, the zombie crop finds out, the kid on the tricycle, you know, um, what else is, he, this is uh, progeria isn't mentioned, but Lannison actually does accumulate and produces an awful lot of old age effects. Uh, so I love that he just kind of went point by point, kind of like what we do, just taking notes on the episode. Hey, look, this
1: is weird. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> But really caught on the food thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And in fairness,
1: well, it, in fairness, it made no sense.
2: Uh, Right, right. He did did make some other uh, interesting points. So he said that, you know, there's something about like an almost mental retardation here that they're not going beyond where they are. They're not nation building. They're not kind of working together, that they are just staying completely stuck in the mental state where they are. Um, And I think that that leads into some other interesting uh, comments that we got from people
1: saying, well, the message here was really – don't mess with mother nature. Yeah. Which we talked about a bit. We did. Yeah. I mean, there was, and somebody somewhere, I can't remember if it was on Facebook or on Twitter, but they're saying that through the first, I guess, 11 or 12 episodes, whatever we, whatever we had done when that Mm -hmm. message was, they said that the overriding message of Star Trek for at least the first few episodes seems to be, don't try to improve on humanity (laughs) right? (laughs) because it will always end poorly. Um, and, you know, you could actually make that case. I mean, anything that tries to jump the gun. I mean, certainly there is a there is very much a a sort of I don't want to say human struggle, but I guess I will because it's easy. There's sort mm-hmm. of a human struggle element to what goes on in Star Trek. We you know, we grow and we learn and we experience and we explore and we don't turn ourselves into robots and we don't try to, you know, uh, do the whole longevity thing. And we don't try to wipe out parts of our memory to make ourselves better. So, I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but, but
2: here's the thing. I, I feel like a lot of times, whatever those technologies are that are presented, granted at the end of the day, you, you kind of have to leave it behind. We actually destroy the machine in Dagger of the Mind. Yep. And the, the, the chemicals that they were experimenting with in MIRI are, are clearly done wrong. They have to leave this behind. This is a bad idea for humanity. But at the same time, we are trying to explore to figure out the things that will make us better. There's just no guidebook to tell you how to do it. You know, So we're presented with these technologies and we say, well, uh, okay, are we wise enough to use this yet? And very often the answers here have been no. Um, but I, I don't think that it necessarily says from the outset these technologies are inherently bad hmm. or, or they will be unusable forever and ever. You know, Doctor McCoy is pretty impressed with what they were doing on that planet in Miri.
1: Yeah, but still, yeah. I mean, the over. I mean, I, I would actually agree with the. I I don't think that was meant to be, that, but I think you could make a stronger <laughs> case for. Um, I, I mean, no shortcuts is basically what it boils down to. Yeah, you, yeah. You mentioned yeah. like speed reading courses and you know, learn French <laughs> in an hour right uh, you know is on one of the episodes too i mean uh, one of the one of the ideas seems to be that there are no shortcuts that you can take safely and that may end up being true but i mean certainly we're, we're still working on them yeah and you know maybe some of them will work out and we'll all be happier i don't know anyway it's just, it's just sort of a random thought that that uh was jarred by what somebody had written Random thoughts. We love random thoughts. And if you would like to
2: contribute your own random thoughts to Mission Log, remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Mission Log Pod. You can also leave us a voicemail at our Skype handle, Mission Log Pod, or you can call us at 323-522-5641. Remember, we may use your comments in a future episode. And by the way, if you can, please try to keep your comments short, around under a minute. That'll be easier for us to incorporate into a future episode. Because <laughs> some poor guy
1: somewhere has to edit. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who. No. 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 But God bless him, whoever he is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening <laughs> to us today. Uh, please keep the feed open. More mission logs and mission log supplementals coming soon.
0: And now, your invitation to the
1: Science Lab Christmas party. Now, before we get to anything else, may I just say Christmas party? (laughs) (laughs) Christmas party. The Science Lab. The Science Lab had a Christmas party in the 23rd century. Here's my question, because correct me if I'm wrong, Spock is a science officer, correct? he is did they dress him up as the elf do you think at the christmas party held by the science lab in the 23rd century (laughs) that's just mean um it's not mean it was it was surprising (laughs) it it was surprising here's the thing and i'll go ahead and i'll go ahead and just deal with this right now because i don't want this to become a giant thing that generates any kind of male good bad or other well good is okay um yeah yeah, because who doesn't like good male um it, it makes space accessible again. It's a holdover. Kirk's made uncomfortable by like, oh, yeah, I went to that work party and I kind of maybe, oh, that was embarrassing. Okay. And Christmas okay. party is very accessible because, you know, who in the 1960s doesn't either love the office Christmas party or dream of working in an office just so they can go to one? Right. Right. Yeah. All right.
2: Yeah. All I can picture, all I can picture during this is, is a bunch of scientists around and they've got a, a giant, even on the Enterprise, they've got a giant 1960s uh, mimeograph machine and they're all like pressing their faces on it, you know, their faces? and they're hanging up pictures of themselves, uh, you know, around the office. Their faces is what you're thinking. That's exactly you what see, I was see, what's thinking.
1: interesting, I thought you were going to go for the big uh, tinfoil tree. Well, not tinfoil, but, you know, aluminum tree. Oh, you know, they had that with a little spinny light thing. Absolutely.
2: Uh, Command gold, red and blue. And this is constantly <laughs> circulating those colors around it. Exactly. And green just for fun. Yeah. Because they really I mean, only come with I the four I agree with your colors. take on it. I, I think the, the whole idea of calling it the Christmas party is because in the 1960s, that is the most common thing. I think that if you called it the holiday party, because now in the 21st century, holiday, happy holidays, that's kind of the politically correct thing to say because we include all holidays that occur during that kind of end of the year period. Right. I think if you said that in Star Trek in the 1960s, it would sound like you were trying to be alien, you know? Yeah. Like, it it would sound like, (laughs) oh, is that one of your Earth traditions? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So I so I I can accept calling it the Christmas party, but it just seems well, yeah, it, it just seems like an office party. Yeah, and it's like, really, is that what they do on board? I guess so. We're already making
1: it a bigger thing than it is. But if you want to go ahead and just have a tiny bit more fun, so yeah. the science lab has a Christmas party. Yeah, don't invite those jerks from engineering now. I mean, I, <laughs> I figured, when I first watched it, I thought it was like an enterprise Christmas party. And then when I was watching it the second time and making all the notes and doing all the thing, you know, she says the science lab Christmas party. I'm like, wow, really? Right. So not engineering. No, no, not security. Um, you know, no, just just the science lab. It's, just, it's our Christmas party.
2: And then and people get very upset on Facebook on the enterprise because, you know, they see that one of their friends got invited, but they didn't get invited. And it's a it's a whole mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it is. All right,
0: We really have devoted far too much time to that.